Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. I was just going through uh, old issues of Entheo, uh, Entheogen Review the other day. And uh, a, a newsletter started by Jim DeCorn in uh, 1992. Uh, and it's a really fascinating uh, text. It was, it was sort of the uh, inside pre-internet uh, kind of mailing list network for independent DIY researchers into psychoactive uh, compounds and particularly plant medicines, their extractions, preparation, cultivation, uh, Etc. So in, in many ways, it was a, a nuts and bolts kind of endeavor. Uh, and the people writing in were were often concerned with uh, highly arcane topics in, in botany and uh, psychopharmacology. But at the same time, and from the beginning, from the very first uh, uh, issue of Anthogen Review, ER, um, Jim DeCorn also made it very clear that he was interested not just in the phenomenology in general around psychedelics, but one particular aspect of it, which is the entity phenomenon. And he was coming at it from a kind of interesting esoteric background. He had a pretty, pretty good understanding of, of, of real Jungian approaches. Like he wasn't just a sort of new age Jungian. Like he, he had some critical uh, psychotherapeutic understandings of the self uh, so he wasn't uh, a naive realist about the entities that so many people encounter on psychedelics, but he was also interested in what he called the shamanic paradigm, which is to assume that on some level they're real, um, but more in a pragmatic way than in a supernatural or metaphysical way. So anyway, it, it's, a, it's a very interesting question uh, to find one in a, in a journal that is otherwise devoted towards toward what you have to call real science. Um, but it also shows, I think, the uh, one of the the outstanding questions of psychedelic experience, uh, both in terms of the weird factor and in terms of the interest factor. It's only now that uh, psychedelic discourse is becoming kind of more acceptable, more multidimensional, more informed by science, by both clinical research and neuroscience that the, the wide range of phenomenology associated with psychedelics in a way is becoming up for, for discussion. Um, and so while, you know, in earlier portrayals of the sort of mystical or spiritual side of psychedelics, people often emphasized, um, you know, becoming one with nature or, uh, uh, you know, breaking down subject object or, you know, these sort of mystical aspects of the states. In some ways, now I think the real question is about the entities, um, because it's very persistent, particularly with certain uh, materials, DMT most famously, and therefore to a degree ayahuasca, less so with LSD, but you know, still pretty reliable with, with psilocybin, at least with high doses. Uh, you're going to encounter these sorts of experiences in people's uh, discussions of them. So it's always interesting to see how people wrestle with this because on the surface it brings up such, uh, you know, uh, damning possibilities in alternate dimensions and the reality of the archons and, you know, there's much room for uh, metaphysical speculation uh, with all this material. 
which made me particularly interested in the last uh, uh, time I went to Breaking Convention to see a presentation by Bruce Rimmel, who's our uh, guest today. Uh, and what he was presenting was a model or an explanation of the entity phenomenon, the full range of uh, the sense that we're countering otherworldly beings who have their own intentionality or trying to communicate with us, um, in some ways have relationships with us, perhaps even over time, that that uh, phenomena can be traced to uh, cognitive features of the mind. Uh, and his presentation was very compelling. I was familiar with some of the the literature on cognitive science and religion, because that's one of it's, you know, related to the, the, one of the interesting things about human beings is that if you go all around the world and all of these incredibly different cultures and different environments and people look differently, that you're going to find some very similar things. And some of those things involve the spirits of the ancestors, the spirits of nature, and indeed a, a whole menagerie of otherworldly beings, which get narrated in different ways, but the fact that they're there is a very consistent feature of human beings. And so we, you have to come up with scientific explanations for those if, if you're a scientist. And, uh, and, and so you, 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 know, you find yourself trying to look to cognitive structures. What, are, what is it about the way the human mind is built that lends itself uh, to these kinds of stories and these kinds of experiences. Uh, and so uh, Bruce has uh, now published his book that, that, I, uh, based, that, that I saw the talk uh, was based on, they, they Shimmer Within, Cognitive Evolutionary Perspectives on Visionary Beings. And I'm going to tell you right off from the bat that this is not a breezy walk through the park. Uh, though Bruce is an independent researcher and an artist, and you know we'll find out more about him in a bit, um, he's also a very serious researcher and a very serious uh, cognitive theorist. Uh, he's done his homework. It's ton. There's tons of tons of footnotes. The material that I was already familiar with, he does an excellent job with. There was a lot of stuff that I wasn't familiar with in terms of drawing from the literature of cognitive uh, science. And uh, and then bringing it all to bear to, on this one otherwise very peculiar question about what do we do with these visionary beings? How do we think about these uh, characters that emerge within, uh, you know, intense psychedelic experience? And so it's a it's a fascinating, fascinating uh, uh, read. And we'll, we'll we'll get into lots of uh, aspects of it. Uh, but first, I just have to really acknowledge the uh, tremendous amount of work and care that went into a, um, a theory that is not necessarily going to be that welcomed by a lot of people inside the psychedelic community where there's a strong tendency towards metaphysical speculation, you know, ideas of other dimensions, uh, you know, interdimensional beings, aliens, whatever, and all the sort of, and then the kind of romance of the indigenous and of living in an enchanted world and all of those kinds of domains, which I think have a lot of uh, you know, I, I have a, a more uh, positive view of a lot of that than I think uh, Bruce might. Um, but at the same time, uh, you got to recognize that if we're going to think hard about why these things happen, we ha do have to go into some questions about how the mind works and not just on a superficial level. So uh, with no further ado, let's bring uh, Bruce on to uh, Expanding Mind. Bruce, thanks for joining us. Hello. Thanks for having me. 
You know, one of the questions I, I, I get when I'm, I'm sitting here holding this, you know, 524-page book, yeah. 200, page, 200 uh, pages of notes, there's an immense uh, bibliography, and it's tough stuff. Uh, and you, you, you get down to the nitty-gritty with a lot of uh, different models and, and, and uh, questions and philosophical problems with a variety of perspectives brought to bear on this issue. This is an enormous amount of work, and this is usually the kind of work that people do when they're in the university system and they have a they have a they're, they're, you know there's a structure around them that's forcing them to write their PhD, and then at the end of that they're going to get a job, and then they get you know they yeah. get uh, research budgets, and so there's a reason that people can afford to spend the time writing arcane, very uh, thoroughly <laughs> yeah, argued, <laughs> nitty gritty kind of stuff. And you did it on your own. So you have to be a very interesting person. So before we get into the, <laughs> the stories, I want to know a little bit about who you are such that you would have the kind of energy and focus uh, to put into a, a, a book that is science, but it's this kind of weird, you know, weird science, let's call it. Uh, (laughs) and, and so I, so what, what, what is it in your background? What, what are the influences in your life that led you to, to create the time and space and obsession necessary, uh, to create something like they shimmer within? It definitely was an obsession. Uh, and there are a lot of kind of personal motivations. I guess the first one, let's talk about time and space. Uh, I guess I've, you know, landed on my feet with my choice of life partner because my husband supports me, you know, as an artist uh, and as an independent researcher. And he creates uh, space and time for me to be able to do this kind of thing. So, I mean, that's, you know, purely on an economic, social relationship kind of level. But I started out life. Well, let me jump a little bit Uh, because I'm an artist and I've had... uh, visions since I was a kid, very intense migraines that would flip into kind of jagged, jarring uh, visions, often with kind of agent-like beings uh, involved in them. And of course, one of the things that led me to was to become a self-taught artist who, um, in large part, paints a lot of his visions. Now, another emergent factor springing from that childhood set of experiences was, of course, I fell into psychedelics as a young man. And it culminated, I guess, in my early 30s, where I spent about five years working on a weekly basis with Salvia Divinorum, pretty much every Friday, as I recall. And the number of times with this herb, uh, whichever method I chose to, to use it, I would encounter beings, hive minds, lizard creatures at the edge of the universe, salvia shadow people, uh, little forest elves, all sorts of um, strange and curious things, along with all the other wild and wonderful things that happens with salvia divinorum, you know, time and space modifications, body modifications, all of that. There would be beings. And I found, you know, as many people do in those five years, I found the best way towards, um, I suppose, experiential approaches and psychological integration was to deal with it kind of on a shamanic level. Um, Here's the thing. Uh, My academic background is in physics. Um, So I happen to be, and my specialism was quantum mechanics. So I actually happen to be uh, pretty familiar 
on a, a mathematical as well as an experimental level with all the the the, the quantum experiments that make that theory uh, plausible and and you know accepted by the scientific community. So I kind of entered into this kind of schizophrenia where I'm like, okay, I'm dealing with this stuff on a shamanic, experiential, psychological integration level, but I am a person of a scientific disposition. So really, I'm not going to accept much in the way of metaphysics unless you're going to give me some empirical proof for these extraordinary claims. The clincher really came in 2012, summer 2012, when I took uh, in a festival a very, very strong mixture of 2CB and 2CI. And, uh, well, I, I, I talk about this vision in the beginning of the book and also at length in, in like a po uh, an end note at the end of the book. Uh, it really was uh, a wild and wonderful, mind-blowing, quite literally, mind-blowing experience um, where... Long story short, my mind was made neurocosmic. That was the very clear intention I got from the vision. And it was made neurocosmic by two very clear, very sentient, apparently discarnate visionary beings sitting on each shoulder. And really, that was the crunch. That was the point where I'm like, okay, I can do the shamanic thing again with this. I can integrate this. I can create art from it. And one of the, the drawings from this vision, uh, you know, graces the, the, the front cover of this, of the book I've written. But in the end, my scientific disposition came out and it was like, right, we're going to have to sit down with these personal motivations and really work out what the hell is going on here? What did I experience and how on a, a mental, social, evolutionary, cognitive, um, Darwinist, humanist way, how was this possible to see these things? Whether they have an independent existence or not, you know, how is a, a metaphysical question might be, how is it possible for your mind to enter another dimension to see these literal beings? But being of a scientific disposition, I was more of the, the mind, how is it that the mind can create these experiences? And I'm also of the mind that when you come to something apparently simple, like vision, like language, art, religion, we have these very definite categories for what are very, very mercurial, interconnected, and often radically delocalized across phenomena across the whole human being. And I got to thinking that, you know, we got these really simple names for them, visionary beings, machine elves, discarnate entities. But I've got a feeling that this is going to spread across the whole of the human being. Um, so I kind of got ready for a long slog in what I've called a rational but complex answer. Um, and the intention is to, in part to explain, although I admit it's a partial explanation, but the intention is also not so much to make a complete description, but to open up in psychedelic discourse a completely new type of conversation, one which 
infuses the insights from the cognitive science of religion about things like agency, about social intelligence and the the innate functions of the mind towards things like teleology, um, which are all relevant to the problem of visionary beings, but also really the problem of evolutionary psychology, uh, which looks at the mind through the lens of Darwinism, which is not always popular um, in psychedelic discourse or many discourses, because Darwinism does tend to dissolve things that that feel quite comfortable. So uh, let, let, let's stop there for a second yeah. and go, uh, and because I, I think it's important to, um, to really characterize the position of cogn cognitive science before embarking on the specifics. Um, yeah. You make an interesting uh, point in, in, in talking about other theorists, other psychedelic theorists who have thought about what are the different ways we can think about visionary beings? Mm. You know, on on you know, on the one side, the, the the extreme metaphysical side that they have some kind of ontological reality to them. Maybe they exist in another dimension. And then there's the quote unquote reductionist argument, which has to do with usually with neuroscience. Oh, there's something about the perceptual yeah. system, blah, blah, blah. Cognitive science is not the same thing as neuroscience. And and no. so let's Let's just try to characterize what cognitive science is trying to do, or I can, you know, sort of begin the, the process by saying that what it's looking at are deep structures in the mind that we can explain, understand, and even to some degree test uh, that um, can uh, emerge under evolutionary pressure, under Darwinian pressure, so we can understand why that there's very if you want to say it, hardwired aspects of our cognitive system that regardless of the underlying neurology, that doesn't really matter what's happening on the neuroscientific level. What it is is an explanatory way of talking about deep features of the way human cognition works, and it finds the explanation for those inside of the sort of Darwinian scenario of, of you know ancient Paleolithic life, the, the, the life yeah. we live for the vast majority of our experience on, on, on the earth. Uh, well, I, wa I want to say, you know, cognitive science is, is kind of a, a multidisciplinary approach with many strands. And the strand I have picked up is, the, is, is kind of the dominant one in the cognitive science of religion. But there are other cognitive sciences, as it were, where, say, neurology is more important and, you know, evolutionary uh, motivations are less important. So, you know, I don't want to characterize the whole of cognitive science as just this one thing. It is a many-stranded thing. But really, what I, if I had to describe cognition, it would be the fundamental reality structuring propensities of the human mind um, as, as a fundamental basis upon which perceptual categorization is facilitated. Right. And then and, we can we can understand those partly by seeing how they would function in under evolutionary pressures. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the evolutionary pressure is one angle on, on cognition. And one of the things that comes out of evolutionary psychology is the model of the mind, which is what they call massively modular. 
filled with lots of little systems, some of which are bundled together, some of which are encapsulated on their own or communicating with one or two other systems. And then slowly you get these higher order systems until you get these kind of global workspaces or meta representational areas, which you know correspond in part towards moving towards what we might Im think of as, as conscious reflective cognitions. Um, and it's here in this massively modular or this kind of um, mental domain of bundles of these little modules where we find the most fertile ground for explaining things like well, a lot of human culture, a lot of the, the, the mental foundations of human culture, and in particular, supernatural conception um, in that you, supernatural conception isn't a fundamental of the human mind. It is a mixing of different outputs, as it were, from different modules fluidly mixed together. Um, so, for example, uh, one of the examples I give in, in the book is let's think about a mountain with a soul, which is a real world example from the Aymara of Bolivia. Now, what they do is they feed this mountain with llama hearts because it's a soul. It's a, it's a, a, a human-like entity which requires feeding. And what happens is you take these things that run in parallel. You take what you know from your natural history modules. Well, a mountain is a, an inanimate object and it's made of rock. It's a home for animals. It's an ecosystem, so on and so forth. And what you do is you block one of those inanimate object. We're going to close that one off. But everything else, we're just going to let run. We're still going to see it as a mountain, but we're just going to close off that inanimate object. On the other hand, you've got all these massively modular bundles thinking about social things, thinking about people and interacting with people and thinking about what humans are like and how we can um, anticipate other people's actions and needs and desires in a social world, which is obviously a really, really important evolutionary motivation for human survival in a social human world. And what we can think there is, you know, uh, a human, well, a human has a human-like mind, has a human-like body, has a human-like soul, probably has an appetite, likes to eat something, uh, probably thinks about other humans. And what we do is we take that one about the body and we block that. And we take the, the, the rest of it and we put it where the inanimate object of the mountain was. So you see there's this fluid mixing and we suddenly get this Aymara conception of a mountain that is an ecosystem for animals and so on, but it's also human-like. It's got a soul, it's got a mind, it gets hungry, that kind of thing. So it's, it's kind of a, a, the cognitive science of religion is kind of a strange, not exactly abstract, but kind of an advanced take on the fundamental evolutionary flows within the human mind. Uh, taking all those basic cognitions that are evolved and are answering to evolutionary motivations of, you know, survival, life, death, well-being, uh, reproduction and all that. And saying, well, what happens when you mix those in these particular ways? And it, from that perspective, a lot of su human supernatural conception becomes not so much fantastical, 
but almost kind of predictable. You kind of once you mix these 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 parallel processes together, it the the the, the conception becomes almost like oh well now that suddenly makes really really quite a lot of sense, and you yeah. can predict. You can predict supernatural concepts that just never would work, like, for example, a god who only exists on Wednesdays or, you know, a, an enchanted knife that on magical holy nights grows a foxtail. Now, that's a, um, a mix of fluid mix of concepts. But, you know, it just as a supernatural concept, you know, an authentic human one, it just doesn't quite work. Well, and we, we can even recognize that from from modern fantasies that a lot of the more ironic uh, and playful mo modern fantasists will actually play with that. They will yeah. they will, you know, uh, take existing kind of cliched ideas which work because they they have a sort of uh, they, they resonate with our, our cognitive expe ex uh, expectations mm. and then they'll add absurd features of it to kind of even just play with that quality of fantasy. So, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the fundamental, the key ingredient in any supernatural conception is something agent-like. It's something social-like. It's something human-like. It might not form the whole part of the supernatural conception, but it's got to be there. So, and it, it's got to be human-like enough, so permanently existing. So a, a knife, which is an inanimate object that grows a fox's tail, which is an animal aspect, yeah, an animal aspect with a human, that'd work. Uh, an inanimate aspect with a human, that'd work. But an inanimate aspect with an animal, yeah, it does, just doesn't quite pertain to human lives relevantly enough. So it just comes off as kind of surreal or absurd. But it's in this, this evolved idea of the agent, um, which is really, really, really fundamental to human cognition. Well, yeah, uh, this is... Yeah, let's yeah. go. Let's go into that a little bit. I mean, I, I, I just to anticipate the conversation a little bit is that, uh, you know, one of the key elements that uh, cognitive science of religion points to is is what would they call it, you know agency detection that we're yeah. wired to recognize agency and even to overread the possibility of agency because yeah, they call it hyper detection. Right. Um, right. The idea is to overread it and then have an efficient way of of kind of you know um getting rid of the false positives as it were um, yeah and 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 that also it also seems to be a, a situation where some of the um emotional qualities that can be associated with the emergence of visionary beings in psychedelics also seem to be related to that kind of Darwinian framework of you're on, you're on the savanna. You don't you see a little something shuffling behind the the yeah. uh, uh, the, the, the 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 fronds, and you're like, what is that? A, is that a intel? Oh wait, is something intelligent there? They're watching me. You know, there's yeah. this sort of basic situation of a little bit of fear, a little bit of uh, a, a great deal of awareness, a great deal of focus. And all of those features, in my experience, weigh in on the emergence of, of the of the agent within psychedelic vision. So there's yeah. some way in which the that aspect that 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 that's that the psychedelic uh, experience is kind of whatever replaying or reframing some very 
Bringing something very ancient into immediate experience, you know? Uh, the, the example I always like to give, this is a kind of funny one. Um, if you ever watch Rush's unedited footage of things like gazelles eating grass on the savannah, and you see them, they got their head down in the grass, but their ears are flicking about, and then suddenly it's like, woof, heads up, what the hell is that? Oh, oh no, fine, it's just the wind. Head back down, eating grass, head back up. No, hang on, what was that? And most mammals that are prey animals, and for most of our evolutionary history, that's exactly what primates were and early humans. It made sense to imagine or absolutely be convinced that there were lions, hyenas, whatever, predators watching you in the grass. But because to be wrong about that a hundred times would just cause you to be a bit flighty. To assume that a creeping lion, an unseen lion or hyena was just the wind, you would probably pay for that with your life. So it made sense on an evolutionary life and death kind of way that it, you're going to survive if you're paranoid about lions. Now, they call this the predator-prey schema. And after a little while, as, as primates got into the whole idea of being social, um, this agency was kind of exapted into that social agency, uh, into that social intelligence. Because it, if I'm going to hang around lots of members of my own species, then it's kind of, I'm going to be better at anticipating them if I think of them as agents too. And so, right. it, 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 but both in terms of, of people who can help me, nurture me, protect me, and in, in terms of people I can't necessarily trust. Yeah, uh, I don't know if everything lying, from unexpected you know. to aggressions to, hunt, right. to to seeking out mates to hunting out protect, protectors who are going to help. You know, everything. Uh, and a agency is 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 so fundamental to the to the to the human mind in that respect. And one of the things I, I do have a little bit of a problem with this word hardwired. I tend to think of agency as more tripwired. It's kind of easily triggered, difficult to inhibit, but once it fires off, it's quite creative. It's quite, it goes all over the mind. It's not so much an automatic behavior. It's, it's well, for example, when it does trigger, there is, you can inhibit it through recognizing it's a false positive. So it's a kind of tripwire thing that goes on in the human mind and cascades out across all sorts of features uh, within the human mind, within human culture, within the primate mind sitting under the human mind and so on. But it's really agency, you know, if you think fundamentally about this, this predator detection system, what you're looking at is somewhere out beyond the boundary of what I know, there are eyes watching me, and that is a survival trait for me. If you think about social intelligence, um, you, you can, I can have a conversation with you face to face and you can look at my eyes and my face and see my head and you're going to think, well, I don't know what's going on behind those eyes, but a good trick is to say somewhere in the boundary, beyond the boundary of what I know, in that unknown space behind your eyes, there is an agent. And after a little while, when we get really, really good at social intelligence, we start to realize um, that we ourselves might be agents. So this self-agency is the beginning of kind of great ape and 
human self-reflective consciousness. Now, monkeys are very social, but they don't have this. So we know that you are an agent probably came before, oh, I'm an agent too, this self-agency. So, and all of these ideas also come with high emotion, you know, the predator, the, the, the fear, the, the kind of full-on um, hair standing on end kind of thing that you also get when you're wandering in a forest and think you can feel a ghost near you. So you can see that there are links between these evolutionary motivations of agency and these visionary or supernatural experiences relating to unseen agents that, you know, I'm, I'm calling visionary beings. Um, now, that's a very that's kind of a simplistic way of making that equation. I do a lot more work in the book kind of talking about that. But that's a kind of broad sketch of 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 the fundaments of agency within visionary experience. So can can you can we talk about it in terms of uh, describing, let's say, uh, you, whether just hypothetically or based on some of the examples in your book, when mm. people are immersed in intense visionary experiences, let's say they're they're you know in some kind of quote unquote hyperdimensional uh, ge you know ge geometrical environment of fractalizing yeah. uh, surfaces, and then suddenly uh, there's something else. There's there's something yeah. looking back at you. Whatever. How how well, do you Describe, yeah, like redescribe that with your ideas yeah. in mind. What happens if I think there's a hyena in the grass 10 meters away watching me? My, all my senses go on wildfire, okay? I've super heightened. My cognitive demand shoots through the roof because I've, I've gone from walking quietly through the savannah to I might die in less than a minute. So my cognitive demand, my senses are on hyperactive, hunting around for what I believe might be a hidden agent. What is it about being social? Well, humans are so complex that our minds have a huge amount of very often unregistered and unconscious, but nonetheless very, very high cognitive demand just to deal with each other just to socialize with each other. Socializing isn't automatic. It's a game of plot, counterplot, constantly changing situations that also requires consciousness. What happens when I'm in, you know, a DMT or a salvia divinorum experience opens with what you might say is by definition, extremely high cognitive demand. What happens next is the mind falls back on the most reliable categorization and interpretation systems that it's known has kept it well, happy, and surviving for millions of years. Agency and sociality. Um, and on a side thing, we, you know, the other thing is that even a 10-minute-old baby will point, toward, point their faces towards uh, other human faces. So we know that face perception is also uh, a really fundamental aspect of human categorization and cognition. We are drawn to agency, faces, and sociality. So you've got this hyperdimensional geometric wildness going on. And, you know, presumably there's a, a moment where the, the mind, as it were, kind of says, I don't know what to do with this. 
oh, hang on. And it kind of maxes out. And then it finds, so when you max out, you, you, you go to the most intuitive, the most fundamental. There are experiments by um, cognitive psychologists all over the world that demonstrate that when you're under high cognitive demand, the teleological, the agent-driven, and the social are the first things that appear. And of course, you know, the ubiquitous um, idea of um, <clears throat> pareidolia, you know, the seeing of faces in clouds and so on. Um, mixes with this agency, this this drive towards seeing everything uh, that's difficult to understand in agent-driven or social terms, and slowly behind, from behind or within or in front of these geometrics, you construe the beginnings of agents uh, and construal. Um, <clears throat> properties in visions is something that David Lewis Williams talked about. And it's a really important point that <clears throat> essentially what the, the mind is doing is construing agents within itself because what is happening has maxed out its cognitive demand. It's so causally opaque what's going on that you just jump to the first thing, agency. Right, okay, cool. I've got some solid foundation from where I can go next. Yeah, and I, I sometimes <clears throat> sometimes I, I I think about uh, the agent that way as a as a kind of interface that that we partly co-create a uh, an agent with a sort of recognizable personality or or, or physiological form or whatever. Yeah, as, as a way to uh, it kind of pops up on the interface between us, our minds, and something that is very very difficult for us. To understand yeah and, so and um most things in the world and in ourselves and and um in the social world are by definition very very difficult to understand so we we have used agency for a long time as a kind of shorthand to kind of you know one of the great things about agency is is if you just think of some say natural phenomenon as an agent you suddenly get all these inferences for free they're just kind of, you know, I'm I'm walking through, I'm walking through the, the 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 countryside, and I see a storm on the horizon, and I think, hmm, I think that storm's going to try and get me soaking wet, and suddenly you've got all sorts of inference. You know that the storm isn't an agent, but you've got all these inferences about what you can do, how you can get away from the storm, you can guess where the storm wants to go next, all this kind of thing. So you do get on this interface, you get these these um a whole load of things for free and if agency is the 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 trigger for a cascade of things once you've got the idea or, or idea is more of a conscious thing once you've got this foundation of an agent the mind really can't resist triggering these kind of creative cascades and suddenly <clears throat> we've gone from an agent with a face that's looking towards you to a fully formed human-like but also very often supernatural entity that has <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> that has you know intentions towards the visionary because that's what agents do they have intentions they act upon the world they 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 change things in a way that non-agents can't do so once i've got this agent suddenly it's got an intention and it's facing me because we tend to resolve faces as as looking towards us 
and it's facing me, so its intentions must be towards me. So, oh, right, okay, it wants to bring me some impossible multidimensional objects and tell me, to, to paraphrase Terence McKenna, not to be astonished. Or, you know, one of the examples I've got in my, my book, it's actually a, uh, um, from a, a one of uh, Rick Strassman's subjects, is actually a cactus being, and it wants to probe me. That's a little more on the malevolent side. Um, but you see how this seed of agency cascades a whole load of things going on in the human mind, simply from the fact that agency in, a, in my, primate minds has been around for so long and is so reliable and so useful in so many situations. So the mind kind of goes, why not this one? Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, and I want to ask another sort of outcome <laughs> of the cognitive science perspective in terms of psychedelic experience or especially intense psychedelic experience. Yeah. Um, which is that you've, so you've outlined a sort of a very modular view of the mind that be beneath the conscious layer, uh, you know, we're not going to talk about the, uh, the unconscious of Jung and Freud. We're talking about something that's, that's non-conscious. That's all of these small units that do certain aspects of what we would think of as cognitive work beneath the floorboards. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we've got to keep in mind, you know, in the end, we, we are looking at this as a model. Yeah. But that is generally the, 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 the kind of, it's a model so, that, that's very productive. Right. So the, but the question I have is just within that model, do you have a, a, a sense a speculative or a, a, you know, whether it's a speculation or whether it's a, a strong, argument for whether one of the things that's happening in psychedelics, in addition to this uh, tendency to, to construct agents, is that we're actually able to consciously, on some level, witness, confront, recognize the behavior or emergence of these normally non-conscious elements of cognition, that part of what the psychedelic experience is, is the bringing to the surface of this material, not like, uh, you know, memories or archetypes, not that kind of stuff, but the, 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 the nuts and bolts, if you will, mm. of cognition, and that that becomes sort of available in a way that it normally is not. In some respects, I'm kind of agnostic about this question. I think, you know, throughout my book, what I say is that, yeah, I'm talking cognitive evolutionary, but, you know, personal disposition, cultural expectation and imagination, creativity and all of these other things are very important in constructing visionary experience. So I'm taking one strand in what is an even more complex phenomenon than my my book, you know, su suggests or implies. Um but I want to say, uh, generally, I think that these non-conscious modules have to remain, as Dan Sperber called it, encapsulated, closed off to any kind of conscious uh, attention in order to do their work. Um, let me give you an example, or, or not so much an example, but a commonly reported experience. You see a visionary being, you come back out of the experience and you go, wow. I really couldn't have imagined that even if I'd have tried. I, that really didn't come from me. This, it doesn't come from meanness. This otherness, this alienness is like a really characteristic aspect of the visionary being encounter experience, as well as its kind of mind-blowing nature. 
And so I guess if I if I say that if I even get the vaguest inkling that my consciousness can engage with these non-conscious modular systems um, in anything other than a symbolically mediated or you know, cognitive, yeah, I, I tend to call it a symbolically mediated way, which, you know, symbolic cognition is itself quite, you know, fluid mixing of different intelligence systems taken as bundles rather than individual modules. I think it, if, if I were to imagine that that were possible, then I'm not sure I could explain that, wow, it really didn't come from me. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's kind of a very abstract point I'm kind of making there. I think one of the hallmarks of this visionary being encounter that any scientific or philosophical or rational com but complex explanation has to account for is that, wow, that really didn't come from me. Where the hell did that come from? Which and is, I of course, even even a question we can ask with with certain dreamscapes. I mean, if we, you know, it's extraordinary if you know, m much m most people are much more willing to accept that what is happening in dreaming. Even I'm not saying dreaming is the same as these experiences. There's no, but there, there are there are links for sure. But there are, but just there are the, the 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 ability of the mind to create some of the extraordinary things that we see in dreams, even if we're partly reconstructing them in memory. Uh, is still like always a, a reminder of how extraordinary the mind just on its own <laughs> without yeah. any other supernatural agency, yeah. you know, uh, uh, can, can be, you know, it's funny. I, I knew that this conversation was, we like, it, it feels like we're just getting started and we have like 10 yeah. minutes. Left. It's <laughs> totally absurd. Um, but so, but what I wanted to do is, is shift away from the, the model and the explanations that you provide and say, look, if you like this kind of stuff, check out, Bruce's book. I mean, it's really remarkable. He's yeah. very careful, <laughs> and and you you know you 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 go down all all sorts of, uh, of extra paths that need to be gone down. So it's a it's an and impressive. I try I try really hard not to be reductionist. I, I, what I call my approach, I guess, is humanist expansionist. Right. Well, that, that, you can't you can't take get... one thing and and just isolate it and say that's unconditionally special and doesn't communicate with anything else that's that's human. If you're going to take one thing visionary beings, art, religion, whatever, you've got to, you've got to explore virtually everything else, what it is to be human. Absolutely. Uh, and it's an, and it's an expansive view. I mean, what I was, was thinking about philosophically is, is your position is, is a lot like Feuerbach. Feuerbach comes along in the, in the history of religion and say, you know, guys, you know, it's, it's not like there are gods that created human beings. It's that human beings created gods. Yeah, that's fundamental where shift, I'm from. right? And and the thing, what's interesting about Feuerbach though, is that a lot of people misread him as being a kind of proto-Marxist reductionist. But if you yeah. actually go back and read Feuerbach, what he's really saying is that the human spirit is extraordinary. It's a, a, a mind blowing that we are <laughs> able to create yeah. these dimensions and to run with them and to you know like so it's a much more Absolutely. like up, you know yeah. humanist perspective and that's that's the impression I get from your book. What, one that, of the most hilarious things and most absurd but also most wonderful from my perspective, this cognitive evolutionary perspective on visionary beings, is the capacity of the mind if you'll pardon the expression, to blow itself, to create a concept or experience that it itself cannot fully 
integrate or encompass. That is utterly absurd, but it's exactly the kind of conclusion that I think a scientific explanation of visionary beings demands. The mind can mind blow itself. And I yeah. think that's that's just something that, you know, from an experiential level is a really important and key point to maintain, even as you're trying to explain. So I want to tease this out a, a little bit more okay. because I'm imagining people who are, you know, sympathetic to some of this line of thinking, but are also invested in various ways with more uh, supernatural, mystical, ontological views of other dimensions and other beings and, and maybe have, have personally in their own practice, uh, you know, whether they're pagans or, or Tibetan Buddhists, developed mm. relationships with incorporeal beings that end up shaping their lives in positive ways. And mm. so that there's a, that, that even though you are not a classic reductionist and you are not of the, uh, you know, Richard Dawkins school of, of hatred of religion and all that kind of no, thing no. that, that, that someone can still, you know, that it's in the air, you know, it's like, there's, there's some, some of that kind of dismantling, uh, yeah. is, is, is in your perspective. So I, w I would like to hear you think a little bit about even just talking personally for you, or mm -hmm. just, if you imagine someone who's taking on your arguments and really going, you know, in, in many ways, these are some of the best explanations, or at least we have to factor these particular explanations into our accounts of what's yeah. happening with visionary beings. But nonetheless, there's still this question of what do you do? Do you, do you say hi? Do you uh, pick up the conversation later? Do you bring an object onto your altar because it reminds you of this encounter? Yeah. Do you yeah. write the poem? Do you paint the painting? And your, you are clearly yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering how. Absolutely. How do you imagine balancing <clears throat> the explanatory regime of facts and empirical science and theory testing with the exuberant embrace of these poetic re religious mythopoetic possibilities? Yeah. Well, one of the things I've been developing, I've been, this is actually the third book I've written, and I'm developing a philosophy that I call visionary humanism, precisely to answer this question. So anything I think or say right now is kind of a, like a work in progress. So one of the things that I think uh, humans obviously have a lot of existential anxieties, because in some ways we know too much, starting with we know we're going to die. There's nothing any one of us is going to be able to do about that. It is a cold, hard fact of human life. We know we're going to die. We also know that we don't know stuff. We don't know if we're being lied to by our friends and family. We don't know if, if you know, we're going to die tomorrow or if we're going to lose our jobs, all this. We don't know what's over the horizon. And we know that we don't know. There's another um, existential anxiety, I think, that, that is even more fundamental to that. And that we have an intense desire for our experiences to be unconditionally real. And this reality addiction is something that is particularly pronounced in the West, where we say only real things may be meaningful. Now, if I 
come along and say, well, you know, visionary beings, these things that we've all got a lot of emotion and, and feeling and invest, you know, and, and, and psychological integration and life experience invested in. Well, you know, they're, they're, they're just products, complex products of the mind, but products of the mind. And we can say, oh, what a wonderful mind we have to make those things. But still, they're not really real in the sense that we want them to be. OK, my argument is is it not enough that they are meaningful? And I say that even, you know, even as I speak now, those two beings that I'm talking about in that vision back in 2012, they regularly come back to visit, you know, in times of high emotion, there they are sitting on my shoulder and I can feel them and I can feel them pressing into me and I give a little chuckle and I think, yeah, that's a sweet moment for me. But I don't really think of them as unconditionally real, as literally real, to be kind of entertained metaphysically or ontologically. It's enough for me that they're meaningful, that I have structured a large part of my life around them. If the mind can create concepts that can blow itself, that, you know, it can create experiences that it can't fully encompass, even as it's created them itself, um, there is a neat little circularity, um, uh, a recursion, if you like, that you can say, yeah, this isn't real, but it's meaningful. So I'm going to structure my life around it because it's meaningful. Um, and this plays into another aspect of cognitive science. Wherever you look at, cog uh, at consciousness from a cognitive perspective, you end up falling down cycles of recursion. You know, uh, most famously with Hofstadter, I am a strange loop. Um, and I find that when you go down the rabbit hole, whichever rabbit hole, the psychedelic one, the conscious one, the cognitive one, the metaphysical one, you run into recursion. And I think there is a place in a cognitive evolutionary perspective on psychedelic and intense visionary experiences that says, let's play with that recursion consciously. Let's say, yes, it is meaningful. No, it's not real. Let's structure our lives around it anyway, because it is meaningful and it is useful. And I, yeah. I guess that's my position, as it were, right now, um, no. as a kind of work in progress philosophy. I, th I think that's, that's well said. And I, and I think partly has to do with uh, suspending the uh, a certain drive towards that connection of uh, towards that towards reality as being the only thing that gives value. And another I, I way think, of. I think the real, the key word I always use is not reality, but relevance. Mm -hmm. That's really mm -hmm. where I, I like to come from on this. Oh, for me, I always think that there's just different ways there are for things to be. And so there's yeah. a way it is for Sherlock Holmes to be. <sighs> for that sure. Is, that is significant. And yet it is clearly not in the domain of, of uh, you know, naturalistic facts, hmm. uh, that, that fictional reality. So that there are different kind of modes of, of ways there are, are, for, are th for things to be. And that once you accept that, then you can move. You, you don't run into these contradictions and you don't always try to collapse things into one explanatory regime, which you don't do. But many of the people that you're writing about do, you know, uh, yeah. it, it, if we had if we had more time, which we don't, we have like a minute, I'd be like, oh, okay. I'd be, I, I, I would be interested in, in hearing more about uh, that. So maybe we'll have you have you back for another uh, another conversation. Well, but I was heartened that. to hear 
that you that when your beings show up again and there's a sense of familiarity that, For sure. that there's no change in your willingness to uh, affirm and enjoy and uh, even give in that relational way. Absolutely, absolutely. And from a from both a rational and a metaphysical perspective, I think my position will seem paradoxical. But nonetheless, here I am living it. You know. <laughs> well, that and that that kind of paradox is is also part of the psychedelic message. I mean, I think that's another philosoph whole other philosophical dimension to it, which we haven't talked about is the ability to be in paradox and yeah. live and enjoy that possibility. Uh, uh, and not get destroyed by the contradictions or by the need to make it all wrap itself up. Mm, for sure. I mean, you know, I, I think the one hallmark of why visionary experiences like this are so meaningful is they are open-ended. You can't, the, the only way you can come to quick cognitive closure on things like visionary beings is to d dismiss them out of hand. There, it's done, it's delusion, right, what's next? If, if you're going to in any way f see the meaning in these experiences, you're going to be living with that for life. It's, it's open-ended, ever-changing. And, um, you know, I don't think uh, a, a person of a genuine scientific disposition can dismiss these experiences, which are at the very least um, statistically significant psychological phenomena at the very I, least you can't dismiss I, them out of hand you know i totally buy that i i always thought that as 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 cognitive science and neuroscience take on the full reality of psychedelics that very interesting questions were going to have to be asked because you could not put things under uh the you know under the rug anymore and vice versa and that means that it is incumbent upon psychedelic thinkers to fully take on the, the the scientific and cognitive aspects uh, mm. and explanatory explanatory re, uh, regimes around their experiences, even if they don't end up sitting there, uh, yeah. that it can't be just seen as mere reductionism and oh, it's just Western thinking and oh, da 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 that that we're that that should be in the past. Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, we're gonna have to end it there. Uh, Thank Bruce you, Rimmel. Thanks so much. It was a great conversation. And once again, if you guys like, if you like this kind of stuff, please check out They Shimmer Within: Cognitive Evolutionary Perspectives on Visionary Beings. And it's got a lot of cool illustrations from Bruce in there as well. And it's it's really a mind blowing book. So uh, thanks for writing it again, Bruce. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. All right. Uh, until next week, folks. Keep your minds open. <laughs>